Welcome to the podcast, Let's Talk Sped Law, a podcast dedicated to discussing special education rights of children with disabilities. I'm your host and special education attorney, Jeff Forte. Now let's talk Sped Law. In this episode of Let's Talk Sped Law, my special guest is attorney Jack Robinson. Jack Robinson is a partner in the Denver, Colorado law firm of Spies, Powers, and Robinson. Most significantly, Jack Robinson was the attorney that represented the parents of Andrew F. in the United States Supreme Court case, Andrew F. versus Douglas County School District that was decided on March 22nd, 2017 and forever changed the standard in which a child receives a free appropriate public education otherwise known as a FAPE. In this episode, Jack goes through all of the procedural history that led up to the Supreme Court decision, as well as goes through what the standard now is for a free appropriate public education. This is a great, great podcast to listen to, especially if you have a child that is on the spectrum and is not advancing in their school progress year over year. On March 22nd, the U.S. Supreme Court, March 22nd, 2017, the U.S. Supreme Court decided one of the most significant special education cases in over 35 years. In the Andrew F. versus Douglas County School District, the justices unanimously ruled under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act that public school districts, public school students with disabilities are entitled to greater benefits than some lower previous courts had determined. And it's my pleasure, privilege and honor today to have on the uh, national podcast here, the attorney that brought the cause of action that went through all of the uh, losses at the lower court levels to victory at the U.S. Supreme Court level, Attorney Jack Robinson. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, when I when I talk about the Andrew F. decision to the clients that I present to and the clients that I uh, meet and and, and um, do presentations to, you know, one of the biggest takeaways that I always tell families is the A in FAPE free appropriate public education has forever been changed as a result of the outcome that you achieved uh, in in the Andrew F case. Um, And what I was hoping to do from a, you know, kind of from the parental perspective is to kind of get granular and talk about some of the facts of the case, the, the, the struggles, um, that you uh, experienced in the lower courts. And even, you know, from the parent bar, you know, sometimes, you know, the opposition of actually even bringing it to the, to the, to the highest court in the land um, to now where we now have this seismic shift in uh, reversing or, or changing the standard from that of the Rowley lower standard to the, to the Andrew F uh, appropriate ambitiously appropriate standard and what is Rowley and 
what is Andrew Webb? And kind of kind of get into it um, with with all of your expertise. Sure. So so you had the, the pleasure of representing Andrew F and and his family. Um, and Andrew was not making measurable progress of any sort uh, in his public school district. Can you talk a little bit about Drew? Uh, what is his disability? Uh, what what was his school public school programming like? And um, you know, really, what what the parents did, which is under the IDEA, filing a notice of unilateral placement. So I guess that'd be a good 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 stepping point to start with. Sure. So, you know, Drew is, um, you know, uh, a young boy with, with autism. He's nonverbal. Um, he has had, um, you know, a number of, of um, sort of perseverative behaviors and, um, and fears, right? And especially at school. And, and it does did impact his, you know, ability to say access school or education. One of his big fears, anxiety was um, uh, public bathrooms. You know, he could not go to the bathroom at school. He had all, also this, you know, this incredible fear of flies or of things spilling over. And so, you know, and you know, he's in second grade, right? At this, at this time, second, third, fourth grade. And, um, you know, couldn't go, to, couldn't go to the bathroom, say at school, he'd have an accident, he'd have a meltdown, the, the school district or the school had no plan in place to address uh, Drew's behavioral challenges. And so their response was either to um, further sort of remove him from the class and put him into a, a separate classroom by himself, or more often than not, call uh, his mom to come pick him up and, and um, because they can't, they could not uh, sort of re-regulate his, his behavior. And one of the big things was that, you know, the school district never did a functional behavioral assessment. They never really developed a behavior intervention plan to, um, to address his, his behaviors. Um, and so, you know, it turned into, you know, instead of trying to provide him any level of sort of academic instruction or socialization or communication instruction, it was all, you know, trying to sort of manage his behavior without, um, you know, first figuring out how to address that behavior. Yeah, I remember when we met at COPA a couple years ago, and, uh, uh, you know, you know, you got consent, of course, and everything, but uh, I, I, I was able to take a look at um, the behavioral supports and accommodations on, on Drew's IEP, and I mean, mm -hmm. they, were, they were next to nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like his, I mean, they did have a draft behavior intervention plan that was not based, again, it was not based on any FBA, functional behavioral assessment, and it really dealt with one um, you know, one issue, which is his fixation, perseveration on a timer, which they had used at some point in the past to, you know, as a, as an instructional tool. Well, he got sort of obsessed with it. They took it away. Um, but after that, he, you know, sort of fixated on getting access to this timer. And so he knew, 
um, you know, a timer would be in some other classroom or whatever. So he spent, you know, most of his energy trying to figure out how to elope from the class, get away from the class to go get that timer. Uh, and so his behavior intervention plan was, was sort of limited to how to deal with this timer issue as opposed to sort of the breadth of his behavioral challenges. Right, right. And it wasn't even really informed with ABC data with an FBA with trying to find out what's triggering this behavior. Yeah. Um, so, so then the parents decide they, they've had enough, right? And they, they unilaterally place drill, right? So, I mean, the lead up to that was, was, and again, this is long before I was involved with them that, um, you know, his IEPs, you know, they reviewed his IEPs every year, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Um, and all the goals and objectives really never, never changed. Um, and so, you know, when it came time to develop the IEP for Drew's fifth grade year, you know, the parents are like, you know, the goals and objectives are not changing and his behavior is deteriorating. Um, you know, you know, we're done, you know, and this, do you have any different plan for, for Drew? And they're like, here's his IEP. It's just more of the same. And the parents were sort of like, we're done. You know, you don't get our child. Um, and they decided on their own to, to place him at, you know, Firefly, which is a private school that specializes in the uh, instruction of children with, with disabilities to address sort of head on these behavioral uh, challenges that were a barrier to his ability to to learn um, you know and, and within uh, you know within a fairly short period of time I think they withdrew him in I don't know May of you know May of 2010 say or May of the school year and so over the summer you know the first thing that's this Firefly did was was to do a functional behavioral assessment um, and to develop a behavior intervention plan. And within a fairly short period of time, they were able to to tackle, say, this bathroom challenge. Which really, if you know you can't go to the bathroom at school uh, and you you're having an accident and you know you're able, to, you know you're potty trained, um, so it's not like he has to wear you know a diaper or pull ups or something like that. But um, they were able to to address that, you know by breaking these things down, introducing them to the bathroom door to go in and wash his hands to, you know, that type of thing. And same with the flies, you know, I mean, you can't control whether a fly comes into the room or not. And this you know, child had a, just this incredible fear of, of flies and they were able to, to address that issue such that he could stay in the, in the classroom. And so the parents, you know, in the fall of that, that next school year, so just a few months later, invited the school district back to say, look, you know, <laughs> we've been able to address this. Um, you know, we would like to come back to the public school. His younger brother attends the same elementary school. Um, the school is right down the street from us. We would like to, you know, come back to the public school. Can you take what Firefly is doing and what we've learned from Firefly and put that into place back in the public school and IEP meeting. Again, this is before I was involved. Um, they looked at the data, they looked at the functional behavioral assessment, the behavior intervention plan, everything. And their response was, 
we're going to stand by our IEP from, you know, April of 2010. The doors of education are open to, to Drew if you choose to, to come back. Um, and that was it. And I think within a week or so, they contacted me and said, is this right? Um, you know, what do we do about it? Right. And my, always my, my first response is, well, let me, let me call the school district's council and see what's going on and see if we can get this resolved amicably. The parents had no desire or no thought of, of entering into some legal challenge with the school district. They thought here, we have a solution. This makes sense. You have the ability to do it. You know, the school district had, you know, a a BCBA, board certified behavior analyst on staff. They had the ability to, to do what Firefly was doing. Um, but they just decided, you know, we don't, we don't have to. And so that, you know, sort of was the beginning of, and then the school district, you know, refused to even work with us and we were required, you know, forced to file a due process complaint. You know, we went to mediation. They never, they never offered a dime or never really offered any compromise whatsoever. Um, And, you know, we were sort of off to the races at that point or, you know, our, you know, the decision was, was forced upon us. So it's interesting to get, granular into the kind of procedural history with you, Jack, because, you know, as most, as most people that are in this field goes, you know, you do want to try to make those stops and see where you can get to a point of reasonable collaboration. And, um, you know, to your, to your credit and your, your client's credit, this was not a family that was looking for that pound of flesh for that. Yeah for that, you know, trigger of litigiousness, right? They were, they were trying to move along to get along and you and your client were just uh, uh, shut down with resistance every step of the way. Yeah. Uh, and two on that, I mean, they, yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, they had no desire really to go down this route. And, and two, they have been very private in this, in this respect, I mean, even given sort of the, you know, the high profile of the case, the U S Supreme court, and they've never allowed me to share, say their last name. They didn't, I mean, they've done say some interviews and and whatnot, but they've been very private in this and it's not something that they've, you know, that they took lightly or, um, yeah, it's been very hard for them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, um, let me kind of put some of the law now into this because the district comes back, they draw the line in the sand. They say that, well, he only has to make some progress. Uh, and, and he, he has to just get access to some educational benefit. Right. And now we're talking about uh, board of ed v, v, v Rowley. So can you talk about the Rowley case? Um, which was the law of the land before your victory and how the district applied that standard and what that standard really even is. Yeah, no. And I think that that's, it's an important part of, you know, sort of this, this story because it does go back to, you know, really a case that I had back in, 
you know, sort of the early 2000s. It was decided in 2008 it was Thompson School District versus Loop P. Um, at least in the Tenth Circuit, is the first time that the that the Circuit Court of Appeals addressed head-on, you know, what is an appropriate public education? How do we know um, what a FAPE is? Um, as you said before, you know, that capital A, what is what's an appropriate education? And the Tenth Circuit, um, you know, went back to Rowley and said, all right, well, what does Rowley say? Some educational benefit. What does that mean? And so they broke it down and basically says, you know, Rowley says that this is not an onerous standard, this FAPE. And I'm like, you know, well, <laughs> where do you get that from? You know, I don't think Rowley or the Supreme Court use the word onerous or, or not. Um, but uh, the Tenth Circuit came up with this, the standard for what some educational benefit is. And basically it was it's merely more than de minimis progress. That is some progress on some goal, which was little more than, than nothing. And, and this is, is very important in my mind, you know, to, to keep that in, in context when looking at what the Supreme Court did in, in Andrew F., right? Is because at the time Andrew F. began and was decided, the standard in the Tenth Circuit and other circuits had adopted that same standard, this interpretation of rally of merely more than de minimis benefit some progress on some IEP goal. And it's a very, you know, it's very singular focused, right? On, on here's your goal in your IEP. Is there evidence that that child needs some progress on at least one goal? And what is, you know, what's some progress? Some more than none. And so, you know, so that was in context when, and I was devastated by that decision, right? And I knew that, I mean, what school districts could not show an impartial hearing officer or, or an administrative law judge uh, evidence of at least some progress, right? I mean, you're working on this one thing for a year. There has to be some progress, you think. I mean, there's rarely would there be a case where it's just complete stagnation or regression. And so, I, you know, I knew what a challenge that was going to be for, for parents to prove that, a, say, an IEP was not reasonably calculated to provide a FAPE. And so, you know, this Andrew F. case comes along and I obtained, you know, eventually got his whole, all of his educational records from the school, emails, correspondence, IEPs, everything. And there was not one document in there that showed progress. There are no progress reports, which are required by the IDEA. There is no, I don't know, you know, no hand-drawn turkey for Thanksgiving or, you know, I mean, there's nothing in there. And I'm like, all right, here we're saddled with this merely more than de minimis FAPE standard. Here's a case that doesn't even rise to this level of merely more than de minimis, you know, <laughs> benefit. There's no progress. How's the school district going to prove that, that Drew is making progress, even under that standard, when on top of that, his behavior is, is clearly regressing. And that's all through his IEPs is they're unable to assess or address his behaviors. And so, you know, we went to a due process here and the, and the ALJ found that, 
you know, while the goals and objectives are the same from the second grade IEP to the third grade IEP to the fourth grade IEP, and then for this, this fifth grade IEP, which was the one in dispute, um, she noticed that, you know, some of the goals, not all of them, um, some of the goals included, you know, more sort of, uh, you know, instead of counting coins to a dollar, it's counting coins to a dollar and, and handing over the change or something like that. You know, there'd be changes in the verbiage of the goal that indicated that it was more difficult than it was before. Even though there's no evidence of progress, she um, said under this loop P standard, that at least shows some evidence of of some progress on some goal. Um, so, so when the district was applying Rowley, which was the previous U.S. Supreme Court case uh, from 1982, they're basically saying, "Look, we're 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 giving Drew access to education. Um, it's a basic floor of opportunity. Uh, take it or leave it." Right. And, and and that was the what essentially the Tenth Circuit uh, had with the merely de minimis standard in Latin terms, minimum or trivial or nominal. They added, you know, as if insult to injury, they they added the word uh, merely right to it. And you know, I, I love when you presented on this, and we then uh, get into the judicial appointments. With, with Judge Gorsuch when he was uh, being confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court and him being uh, questioned by the Senate committee as to why he added the word merely to an already de minimis standard. Right. You know, and, and two on that is, is so – just to be clear, you know, this Thompson School District versus Lupe decision, which created this merely more than de minimis standard, you know, the author of that decision was was Neil Gorsuch, you know, who's now, you know, Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. And, um, you know, as you know, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court is very selective in the cases that it agrees to to decide, you know, that the Supreme Court doesn't have to to take any case it doesn't want to. And indeed, out of the 8,000, say, petitions for writ of certiorari, which is sort of the petition to ask the Supreme Court to take a case, it takes, what, 75, you know, 80 cases a year. So about, you know, less than 1%. And that includes all cases, you know, criminal, civil, special education, disability, trademarks, everything. And so, you know, you know, and so, you know, we had filed our petition for the certiorari in the, say, this, this summer of 2016. Uh, and um, obviously that was the election year. And, and, you know, we were lucky enough to have the support of the uh, Solicitor General, who's basically the, you know, the president's, attorney um, who represents the Department of Education, Department of Justice, Department of Defense, Department of Interior, and they were, you know, very supportive of our position that this merely more than de minimis standard um, did not fulfill the purpose of the IDEA and, and that, you know, there needs to be a, a markedly more 
demanding standard for that. And anyway, you know, as sort of everybody knows, you know, we have this change in presidency in, in November of 2016, or at least the election was November 2016, and uh, the actual changing of the guard, if you will, to, to Donald Trump was January of, of uh, 2017. And so this case is really percolating right in the middle of that, that transition. And, you know, I was very concerned or everybody say on our team was very concerned that a new justice was going to be appointed, you know, judge Gorsuch at the time, judge Gorsuch, you know, was on Trump's short list and just the irony maybe of judge Gorsuch being selected, nominated, appointed, you know, and actually on the bench before our case gets argued and decided, um, you know, that he would be then in a position of, of basically deciding his own standard, the appropriateness of his own standard. And as you know, too, you know, you only need five, you know, you need five justices on your side, you know, and the concern obviously being that, all right, if, if, Justice Gorsuch were to be a, a decider of this, that he could whisper in the ear of other justices that, hey, look, I, I didn't just pull this, you know, out of my hat type thing. Here's the wisdom of this merely more than de minimis standard. Here's how, you know, here's how this works in the ear, you know, right. Don't throw me under the bus type thing. <laughs> and so yeah. Yeah. the timing of the case, you know, was, was pretty incredible. It was poetic. It's, yeah. it's quite, quite remarkable. Um, and you know, you, you had, you had losses and no's the every step of the way before the U.S. Supreme Court victory, right? I mean, how, how, how did you, how did you as an attorney, and how did your clients, as as clients, in, in a in a very emotional um, practice of law, kind of keep the compass, stay the course, um, without kind of losing, you know, without losing your mind, without losing hope. Yeah. So I think, I mean, as most anybody can imagine, right. I mean, going into litigation against the school district is, is intimidating, especially when it's your child and your sort of child with a disability, you know, that, that, you know, you're advocating for your child's rights and you have to actually hire an attorney to, you know, to go against the, up against this big school district where again, your, you know, your other child goes to school. Um, I don't know. I think, I think school systems just, by their nature, because we've been through the school system, it's, it's intimidating, right? You go into, like, I go into a school for an IEP meeting or whatever, and you smell the cafeteria and, you know, you know, tiny little chairs or whatever. And it's just very, there's something psychological about it. It's very intimidating. So it was no small, you know, um, feat for the, the parents to, to pursue this, um, you know, and have an attorney, you know, pursue this. And so I think their thought process, our thought processes was, and mine was, and I know the battle, 
uh, it was going to be, but I, I really did maybe naively think that there is no evidence of, of progress here. There's, there's no progress report, so there's no data. How can the school district prove progress when there is no data and there's evidence of sort of this behavioral deterioration? So we went in feeling pretty confident um, and we get the decision and it was just to me just outrageous to you know to reckon for the for the ALJ to recognize there is no progress or there's no there's no data there's no progress reports there's nothing but I'm convinced from you know the, the special education teacher who said that ah you know I loved having him in class great job I talked to the parents about this this and this we're always working together to to make things better um, or, you know, her hanging her hat on the fact that there's changes in the verbiage of some of these goals, even though they're just repackaged year after year. And so I, I think, you know, my mind, I mean, I was very upset about it, but the parents, I think, were, hey, look, you know, this was administrative law judge, <laughs> you know, we'll get a, a more fair shake from a, a federal court judge. And so we're, you know, we want to go that, that next step. And I think we felt fairly confident that the, that a federal district court judge, um, you know, would see the folly in the, the ALJ's decision. And so we, um, you know, so we filed that. You have to file a, a complaint. In essence, it's a, an appeal. And that's its whole, you know, briefing and argument. And, you know, that was, a, I don't know how many years it took to finally get a decision from the district court. Um, but we got the decision, and again, the, the U.S. District Court judge affirmed, so we lost again, um, and that was, I, I think the parents were ready to throw in the towel at that point to say, you know what, all right, here, we, we've taken this as far as we can, we've lost again, you know, but in my mind, one, I, I think it's important to keep in context, you know, this Thompson School District versus Luke P. decision that um that i'm still trying to recover from and the district court's decision against us did say you know that i i don't see any progress here either but um i see at least minimal progress i can't remember the exact words of the the district court's decision but i in my mind anyway sort of latched on to this the words in the decision of of minimal progress from, from the district court. And I'm like, well, minimal progress is not merely more than de minimis. Minimal progress is, is de minimis. Um, and, and anyway, maybe obviously naively or wishfully thinking that, that the district court had, had not even found merely more than de minimis progress, but de minimis progress. And so that was, you know, sort of convinced the, the, you know, my clients, the parents to, to file an appeal to the, 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. And, you know, one of, I mean, the big argument was going to be or was that not only, you know, did the facts of this case, uh, you know, establish, you know, the school district did not satisfy that merely more than de minimum standard, but two, this is 2008, um, or no, I guess it's whatever, 2000, I can't remember what year the we were then um, 2014, 2015, something like that, to say, hey, look, here's this rally standard that was established back in 1982, and say what you will about rally and different courts have interpreted differently, 
But we're now, you know, 2015, the, the IDEA has been completely, you know, amended, reauthorized at least twice, 1997 and 2004. Um, we've come a long way since then. And in each of the reauthorizations, the amendment of the IDEA, they've, they've um, made it more robust. And so certainly, Tenth Circuit, you need to come into the modern era and sort of update your definition of a free appropriate public education. Here's all these other circuits that have said it's a meaningful educational benefit standard. We're stuck in this some educational benefit standard. Um, and here's the case to, to decide, um, you know, decide that, uh, that the 10th circuit should uh, adopt a more robust standard. And the 10th circuit sort of did us a favor from a legal standpoint of actually taking that argument that I had posited and, and they had gone through, all right, here's, here's the different FAPE standards that have developed since rally um and here's how they play out and yes one is you know more rigorous than some educational benefits um but at the end of the day the 10th circuit says because you know our circuit has adopted this merely more than de minimis standard our hands are tied it's going to take either um uh, you know uh, a review en banc by the 10th circuit to to reverse that or really the, the U.S. Supreme Court's going to have to decide this. And so, you know, um, so, so yeah, I mean, the 10th Circuit did at least say, yeah, there's a there's a real circuit split here that needs to be decided by the Supreme Court. And I, I think that helped sort of launch us to get the attention of the U.S. Supreme Court to take this case. Yeah. So so we're talking about uh, post rally uh, post rally, but pre U.S. Supreme Court, Andrew F. FAPE decisions and FAPE standards across right. the, across all the federal circuits across the U.S. and you you mentioned them um, you know for the benefit of the families that are listening right so I think there's kind of three um, you know meaningful education benefit versus some educational benefit versus what your tenth circuit had which is merely more than de minimis benefit and right. it's actually kind of good that they shot themselves in the foot and what appears to be the lowest of the three right although we're, we're kind of splitting an atom that can't be separated right, right. and i think the standards. whole you know and it was this i don't know you know you read sort of the decision of the u.s supreme court that that says it's merely more than de minimis standard is you know doesn't provide an education at all. It's like, you know, keeping a kid in the corner waiting for him to, to, to graduate. And it seems so obvious, you know, when you read, say, the Andrew F. decision and the Supreme Court's sort of staunch rejection of that standard that you think, how could that be the law of the land, or at least the Tenth Circuit and then other circuits that have adopted it for so long, you know? And I, I do think it's this, you know, the you know, sort of this prevalent um, uh, attitude in society, I guess, about low expectation for children with disabilities. Like, look, the IDEA provides for a lot of elaborate procedural safeguards, but 
it just provides that a child can go to school as opposed to excluding the child from going to school. And I think that that was the attitude. We'll do the best we can once he's at he or she's at school, but there's no there's no substantive educational benefit. There's no right to an education. Right. Pulling some of the language that I have here, um, it, it said that the Supreme Court rejected the nearly de minimis standard of the Tenth Circuit and said that when all is said and done, a student offered an educational program providing merely more than de minimis progress from year to year can hardly be said to have been offered an education at all. And for children with disabilities, receiving instruction that aims so low would be tantamount to sitting idly, awaiting the time when they would be old enough to drop out. And that's moving language there. Really and it powerful. is. And it does sort of, like for me anyway, I don't know, again, so brief. <laughs> feeling responsible for that merely more than the minimum standard in the first place, even though it wasn't my choice, it did sort of make me feel kind of sick too, that yeah. that that was the law for for so long, knowing that that you know it didn't provide that standard did not provide you know an educational benefit to to children with disabilities at all yeah so so now we get we get the decision you 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 get the decision um, for the benefit of all all children with disabilities in the entire u s and we now have this ambitiously appropriate decision or appropriately ambitious decision. So it's like a F double A P E. And, um, you know, how do you, how do you now tie the decision in for families that are about to go to an IEP meeting? They're about to sit down just like you did with Andrew F's parents. And how do you now go in to applying the uh, ambitiously appropriate standard for children's IEP. And, you know, it, it, there's kind of language in there that it can be applied in different ways for a fully integrated child versus a not fully integrated child. So my, well, one, I think it's important to, to keep in mind in, in the, the Supreme Court in the NREF decision, states in the decision that that this is a, a standard right it's not a it's not a test and it's not a rubric that you you know you put you know these integers or this data into a calculation and it comes back out as to whether it's appropriate or not and it, it has to apply to as you just said you know all children along that sort of spectrum of sort of unique disabilities from the you know and, and every child is unique. There's there is significant disabilities, you know, um, all across the spectrum. And also, too, you know, there's obviously twice exceptional children who are, you know, significantly, say, impaired or you know, certain barriers on this aspect of their access to education. But you know, uh, have all of these uh, whatever talents or abilities on that. And so this one standard has to has to apply to, to everybody. And, you know, in my mind, the way that I express it is, is that, you know, the usual way of thinking, and I think that this is still 
um, the thinking of, of many parents, of, of many school staff and administrators as well, is that, you know, the IEP is sort of the be all and end all of the of a child's learning plan, right? As opposed to the IEP being that plan to allow the child whole access to education, just like any typical child, right? And that's where the fallacy of the loop P standard, this merely more than de minimis standard was, was that we look at the IEP as providing FAPE, right? As opposed to the IEP providing a plan to obtain an appropriate education, right? And so like in, in the Luke P case and in the lower end of cases, you look singularly at whether the child is making progress on goals and objectives contained in that IEP, as opposed to the whole child, the whole educational program, uh, is the child making appropriate progress? in light of his or her circumstances, and two, is that educational program as a whole, not just the IEP, but the educational program as a whole, is that um, appropriately ambitious? And to me, that you know, that is, that's huge, and it does bring in, certainly in the NREF context, and, and, you know, many other children, whether with autism or uh, social emotional challenges or whatever, it does bring that, say, that behavioral piece into play. It brings that social piece into play that school districts are all too often to, um, say, dismiss from, I don't know, the educational benefit calculation, if that makes sense. This is to say, hey, look, behavior, progress on behavior skills um, is part of a fate. It's not just something to discipline or something to to just address and set aside, but rather behavior in and of itself is a skill that, that comes into this progress equation and how behavior impairs or impacts or, or presents as a barrier to a child's other um, know, educational skill areas. That is also part of the, the FAPE equation. Right. So, so practical applications of, of the Andrew Webb decision. Um, you know, some takeaways are that it's now the law of the land that advancement from grade to grade with access to the general education curriculum um, is an expectation for all children. And, you know, progress, individual progress at the same time should be uh, measured by the child's potential for growth potential which is which is really something that was not prevalent before the andrew f decision um it was just simply access to education not potential for growth in their in their iep um you know I, you know i i often tell parents to empower themselves by reading the decision um because you're really trying to look to get more needs for the child on the front end now proactively rather than on the back end reactively when the program doesn't work and now you got to come back to the table it's it's almost kind of a a proactive approach we're trying to attack issues and address issues before they worsen or um you know don't progress at all right right and i think it too you know it's it's 
don't know, it's important to keep in mind that progress on specific goals and objectives does not equate to a fate, right? That it's it's broader than that. And I think that that's a, a fundamental distinction between, you know, merely more than, or the some educational benefit of merely more than de minimis standard and say this Enderleth standard. Once the former standard looks singularly at, is there data to show he can count more coins at the end of the year than he could before, as opposed to, again, looking at FAPE with a capital A and looking at education with a capital E, I guess, that we're looking at the whole educational experience. Um, and is there progress? And it does go back to, you know, this notion of advancing from grade to grade, like, like typical students. The Supreme Court in NREF even says that that's not necessarily, you know, can, but does not necessarily equate to a FAPE. If the child's, you know, social, emotional, um, say skills or behavioral skills or you know whatever are not are, are also um, not progressing just because the child can somehow put it together and get good grades and, and pass from grade to grade but this whole other piece of the child um, is not progressing then that's not a fate and the school district has an obligation to address that as well right yeah and that potential for growth piece is it you, you hit on it um right there where if a child's not you know fully integrated you know we're talking more of a child that has more profound disabilities uh self-contained classrooms um uh, uh, you know it in not necessarily in the mainstream classroom and they're not able to achieve grade level they're not able to uh, necessarily uh, advance grade level year over year. The, the standard should be that the child's educational program be appropriately ambitious in light of their circumstances. And right. that, that's right from the language there. Um, and that's much more than, that's a lot more than merely de minimis, to right. say the least. Right. Um, which is such powerful language. So so how now you get the decision um what was it like i mean what was it like to you know yeah not not to keep bringing up that sort of that luke p case but it was a traumatic experience in my in my career but it does tie into this that i'm you know driving to work you know uh, and i guess dc is i'm in denver so DC's on the East Coast or two hours sort of later than than we are. And I'm, I'm driving to work. I think it's around eight o'clock or something like that. And I start getting these texts, um, you know, that the, the Supreme Court has, has issued its decision. And of course, I'm just, you know, you know, can barely focus and drive to, to work just thinking, all right, here, I can't like look it up on my phone or anything. So, you know, I'm just very anxious to get to work. Do we win? Do we lose? What's the decision? you know, look like, and again, on that, you know, our two objectives were first and foremost to get this um, merely more than de minimis standard, you know, rejected. That was, if we got that, that was a win. The second was, was to sort of raise the bar on what that FAPE standard would be. And so, you know, I get to, to work and, you know, open up my laptop and I'm 
you know, looking for the decision. Of course, I, you know, scroll down to the end mostly to see whether, you know, we prevailed or not. And as I was doing that, I started getting these texts, you know, these phone calls saying, you know, you need to get on to C-SPAN and see what's, see what's going on. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm still trying to go through this decision. So anyway, you know, get on C-SPAN, open it up. Um, and, you know, right as I was opening it up, um, it was right in the middle of Justice Gorsuch's confirmation hearing in front of the, the U.S. Supreme Court, and Dick Durbin, um, senator from Illinois, was was interrogating Judge Gorsuch on his decision in in Luke P. Basically, how could you, you know, this merely more than de minimis? How could you, you know, come up with this standard? What sort of animus do you have, if you will, against children with with disabilities? And um, you know, somebody had walked, obviously walked this indirect decision over to Judge Gorsuch's confirmation hearing and and was questioning about his, you know, his legal analysis and coming up with this standard that the, the U.S. Supreme Court, written by the Chief Justice Roberts in an 8-0 decision, had staunchly um, rejected in the language that you just read um, just before, and it couldn't have been more strong language to say, you're a standard, Judge Gorsuch, that you came up with on your own, absent any precedent um, that preceded it, uh, the, the Supreme Court has said that, that that provides no education to children with disabilities at all. And so, you know, from my standpoint, it was just like, here, here's this Supreme Court decision that we just won, and in that same moment, it was, you know, being used to challenge, you know, Judge Gorsuch for um, this this Luke P decision um, from a few years before. So anyway, it was a sweet justice, I must say. Absolute, absolute poetic, sweet justice, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, so how's Drew doing now? But you know, most importantly, you know how how is he, and where are you in the in the status of uh of of the case as far as it being brought down again and um you know uh recoupment of the of the unilateral placement um the the hours upon hours of of attorney work that you put into the case where are where is it now right so i mean that you know that's the other piece of this too i mean it really was this litigation odyssey that, you know, we, from the time we filed our due process complaint to, you know, the, the Supreme Court's decision was um, seven years, something like that. Um, and, you know, so it's just an incredibly long period of time. And then the Supreme Court, you know, as we actually requested it to do, we asked it to, to remand to the lower court to, you know, hopefully adopt a higher standard, but then the lower court would um, apply that new standard to that same, you know, 2010 IEP to determine, all right, under this merely more than de minimis standard, which we rejected, um, uh, does the, does this same IEP, does it hold muster or, you know, will it pass this new standard that the Supreme Court has established? And the Supreme Court says, that's not our decision to make. Um, 
we're going to remand it, send it down to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals to make that decision. So it gets remanded to the 10th Circuit. You know, they order us to brief it anew under this new NREF standard. So that's briefed, we wait. Um, and then instead of deciding it, the 10th Circuit says, ah, we're going to send that back to the district court um, to, to make that decision. And so we go back to the, so it's good. The decision gets remanded to the district court. Right. And there, you know, the school district files a motion basically asking the, the district court to remand it back to the ALJ, who originally decided the case, for a whole new hearing, for new new exhibits, new witnesses, a whole other hearing, basically to start it all over. And of course, you know, we file our briefs, or I file our briefs to, uh, you know, prevent that. And at the end of the day, the, the district court says, no, I'm not going to remand it to the ALJ, but I am going to have you rebrief this whole thing, and we're going to have an oral argument on it. And so, you know, we went through that process and uh, <clears throat> Judge Babcock, the district court judge who decided this, uh, you know, ruled very strongly in the parents' favor that's, hey, look, under the Tenth Circuit's application of the merely more than de minimis standard, it itself said this was, you know, without question, a, a very close case. And here, you know, under this new sort of NREF standard, you know, this, this IEP does not provide uh, drew a fape. And so we win. And then, of course, the school district then appeals that to the 10th Circuit. And I'm thinking, all right, here, what, here we go again. Are, are you never going to, you know, is this never going to end? Um, and we had to brief whether the appeal was right at the 10th Circuit. Um, and during that process, uh, we ended up reaching a, a settlement with the school district where the school district agreed, you know, um, you know, basically agreed to, to settle it. I was going to say the terms of the settlement are confidential, but then I don't know, the school district published it all on their website anyway. So, <laughs> so it's, it's not, and then I guess there's a newspaper article about the settlement. So it's, yeah. it's not private. Right. Right. And, and how is Drew doing now? So Drew is doing really well. He is now in the, uh, you know, transition you know, that transition piece of the, the IDEA, he, he's actually still getting transition services through, um, through Firefly and, and uh, you know, has made incredible, incredible progress. And he just, you know, sort of shudder to think where he would be, um, you know, if the parents had not done anything and they just continued down that, down that path, he probably would not be at all a, productive member of society like he is today. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to walk us through an amazing case with an amazing outcome that really has just had such a tremendous impact on the special education bar and for parents, and most importantly for the children that need it the most. Um, I, I, on behalf of everyone that listens to, to the podcast, I want to thank you for the work that, that you've done. And um, really, it's just, it's just great to hear about the case and, and the struggles and the challenges and the facts behind it. Um, but again, congratulations on, on the result. And it's now up to parents that are listening to apply the standard that you've created 
through the Andrew Act decision at the U.S. Supreme Court. So, so right, and I like on that point. I, I think that's probably the the most important point uh, to me. Um, and I'm always I appreciate you, um, you know, taking the time to to delve into this. And you know, my mission is is to spread the word on this as well. But it is one of those things where you know this decision, you know, is not the end, um, and it is sort of like. Brown versus Board of Education, where yes, you know, maybe more of a bright line, the Supreme Court says, you know, that schools have to be desegregated, but, you know, it, it takes years and it takes, you know, further litigation, it takes parents, it takes advocacy groups to, to ensure that that is moving in the right direction. And that's the same with, with this decision is to say, all right, here, yes, it is one thing for the U.S. Supreme Court to say, we're rejecting this standard. We're adopting this markedly more demanding standard. Um, but as you just said, it requires parents then to take that um, and to be ever vigilant and to to pursue this too. Because the school district naturally is, you know, their desire is to say, it doesn't change anything, right? That this was not um, a game changer and therefore this is what we're doing anyway. And so let's, let's, keep this in focus let's you know let's not not really change anything we're doing whereas the parents are the ones who have to push the envelope and swim against the tide i guess and to ensure that that this decision this standard is is interpreted expansively as opposed to you know more restrictively right right well jack robinson thank you again for for being on the show and for empower further empowering parents on the Andrew F. Ambitiously Appropriate Standard. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, thank you. It was my, it was my pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and stay tuned for another episode of Let's Talk Sped Law. 